on the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this Develop Branch episode, we have a very special guest, a container expert and docker captain, Brett Fisher. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? Hello, Mark. I'm, I'm okay. I'm alive. I hear you're, you're passing out of coughs. Yes. Uh, listeners may realise that I do not sound on top form, but that's fine, because hopefully I'm not going to have to say much in this episode. <laughs> I'm sure whatever you say is going to be very important, because in this episode, we've kind of come back full circle. Our first episode was uh, Dr. Docker, I presume, in our first season. And in this episode, in the second season, the first uh, developed branch of this season, we have an expert on Docker which is Brett Fisher. Welcome, Brett. Thanks for having me. Uh, and as well on the show, we have Grant Shepard, who comes from the lovely Blue River, who are famous for the Mura CMS. Is that right? Hello, Grant. Hello, Mark. Yeah, and Mura CMS is correct. <laughs> it's Mura CMS, right? I'm, I, I, it's Mura. It's just Mura. It's just Mura now, actually. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, We're switching to digital experience platform. Is going to be the sort of new hanging nail on it. Okay, that's ooh, ooh. that's fancy. <laughs> yeah, I kind of want me one of them. We all want digital experiences. Um, let's do some introductions, really, because I don't know if everyone knows Brett. Brett, would you like to give a little introduction for yourself? Sure. I'm known as Brett Fisher on the internet, and I nowadays uh, do almost exclusively Docker stuff. So that usually means I'm either at a conference talking about Docker, or I have a couple of popular courses on Udemy, which is like a sort of a YouTube kind of platform for training or courses that anyone can make. So I have a couple of uh, well-known Docker courses there. And I run a Docker meetup. I volunteer in the community. I uh, maintain open source. So I kind of do uh, sort of living the dream, I guess you could say, of, of <laughs> the modern developer. Living the open source evangelist dream, I guess. Yeah. Actually, it's not evangelist. Evangelist is an old term, I think. Is now. <laughs> There's another term for it now. But I work for myself, so I definitely I'm, I'm an evangelist of whatever is cool today that I like, which is nice. That's awesome. That's an awesome thing to be able to be doing, to just be just going, I like doing this. Come along and do the cool stuff. Join me, won't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brilliant. And Grant, would you like to introduce yourself to our lovely listeners? Sure. Name is Grant Shepard. I'm in the London office of Blue River. I've been developing with... Mira for about a decade now, just getting very long in tooth. And uh, yeah, we've uh, we've sort of shifted quite a bit in the the way that Mira's. I guess that we're we're using Mira now. Uh, version seven came out last year and started using mm -hmm. Docker quite a bit in our back end. But sort of design the layout of Mira wasn't really conducive to sort of switching full onto Docker. So that's the big seven point one half of our big switch to the way we're doing things is uh, Docker. Docker first is going to be splattered all over <laughs> the Mira website. <laughs> and we're going to be talking a lot about that. Awesome. Yeah. Rebuilt Mira from the ground up to be more Docker friendly. Docker first is sort of our new mandate, which essentially just means starting with a Docker instance and building out from there. So, right. yeah. That's really what I think a lot of, I was going to say companies, but it's not so much companies, projects, uh, Softwares now. Now that's where I go and look for new software. Like, I think what actually bit me first time was trying to install Redis. 
I looked at the 14-page document of installing Redis on my MacBook Pro and thinking, well, I have to also do this on some other server. And now I could try Redis by literally doing Docker run Redis or whatever the the, you got it. the package manager is. <laughs> and, and then that was it. And it's like, okay, great. Now I can get on with the actual business problem right. rather than the installation problem that you do once, right? In theory, you do once, but yeah, or not that many times. Yeah, you could do a SSRM and have it delete that if that's what you're asking. Right. So, uh, Brett, what got you into Docker? What was your first experience of, of Docker? Well, I think like most of us with the software we're, we're using today or the, that we're fans of, uh, I had my own problem and I needed to fix it. So 2013, I'd say about that time frame, very early days for Docker, late 2013, I kept, um, I was in my own co-founded startup that we were a monitoring company focusing on the Windows market, but that doesn't matter. It, the, the startup totally failed, but our tech was awesome. Okay. And one of those tools that we use... Usually the case. That's right. One of those tools we use was Docker. Uh, it was it was early days, so it was rough a rough time dealing with it. It was a lot of edge cases, but it still was solving an amazing amount of problems for us. It was helping us really make our CI, CD really fast and reliable and easy to maintain. And we were trying to reproduce Linux server stuff on our, he had a Windows machine, my co-founder, I had a Mac. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to run Node.js on servers. So then we ended up having three different operating systems and as awesome as Node is and how it can run across different platforms like that, it was just becoming challenging. And we found Docker and it was, you know, long ago. So it would didn't solve as many problems as it does today. Mm -hmm. But we realized that it was, I, I sort of understood that this is there's so much potential here in this container ecosystem that is a new thing, at least for most of us, that I, I kind of saw the idea of this shift happening. And if you've been around this community long enough, uh, the tech industry, and I have uh, multiple decades, and you eventually start to see patterns where you can see shifts that are going to happen, or you can predict. It's like being a good uh, horse race predictor of a... Right. So you, I, I realized this is a, this is the horse I want to get behind. Mm -hmm. This is the next wave that we had the virtualization wave, we had the cloud wave, and then I really felt like containerization and possibly even serverless on top of that is really sort of the next big thing that basically at the end of the day, 10 years from now, every developer is going to have some interaction with it, at least if it's not the, even, even the standard potentially for how we deploy uh, applications. Right. I mean, I think one of the things that I got into, but I always thought it was a missing thing, was Vagrant. So like the development environments that were my entry point, not, not to Docker, but to this whole idea of scripted environments, right? Yeah. And so we kind of got into it, but I always saw the missing pieces. Vagrant is great because we can spec all this stuff out, but it's designed at the time for development environments. Yeah. But what happens when I now need to go live or need to go to another server that's not the live server? And there's a huge amount of problems that it didn't solve. Yeah. And it was designed around a server, right? Like right. We were, the server was the unit that we were thinking about and the entire operating system. And so, yeah, that was the problem that we all gave ourselves when we adopted virtualization as our standard way of doing things. You know, back if you've been here long enough, you know, you were on mainframes in the in the 80s, and then we got PCs in the 90s. And so, you know, when our data centers in the 2000s, early 2000s, when they were all idle because we had these gigantic servers running tiny little applications and they were sitting at 2% CPU, right. virtualization became this huge potential for actually utilizing that, right? And But we never all predicted the potential for the misuse of it until we actually all had it. And we realized, okay, now 
instead of the 300 servers in my data center, I now have 3,000 virtual machine OSs I have to manage. And that really became, for a lot, I'm an operator primarily, a sysadmin, and that became a huge burden for us, a huge problem that we had to solve that we didn't have before. And now I think one of the exciting things, especially for the operations side is, or especially if you're into DevOps there, is that you get to potentially make decisions that aren't an OS per application. You know, if you have a five, if you have a web service at a web front end and an API and maybe a worker, you don't need separate OSs for that. That's just how we did it in the virtualization world and in the cloud world. And I think uh, Docker helps us, I think, get back to our roots a little bit of help focusing on maybe we just can use it one OS and they can all be in these discrete containered parts of the OS that they don't see each other, they don't affect each other, they don't mess around with anything. So, yeah. So, Coming back to this whole idea of VMs, I mean, you know, if you've got 4,000 VMs, how do you manage the updates of all of those? How do you manage keeping all of them in line? You know, uh, update Tuesday, you can see massive blackouts rolling across your data center, right? If they were like Windows machines. Yep. So now fact, we actually, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, in fact, I, I, for a while I owned the, the domain patchtuesday.io because I thought that was going to become a thing in the industry. <laughs> But it was very true. I mean, I think I remember back, I was on one project and one of the downloads that we had to get was a two gig VM that we could then run and we could just do a mapping. It kind of like have a, a container that maps to like a volume to your code, right? But we actually had this like two gig VM, which was just the whole stack, yep. you know, w with everything in it. Okay, now we still download like gigs and gigs and gigs of different containers, but we don't have to keep those in version control, right? Yeah, which is crazy if you think about it. You know, if, if our original roots of the Unix operating systems, if the founders of those things 60, 70 years ago, if they looked at what we were doing today with virtualization, I think they, uh, they would kind of freak out a little bit and say, this is not what we intended. <laughs> we didn't <laughs> intend to run fake video drivers on top of fake operating systems on a real operating system, Yeah, you know, uh, it seems, it seems a little crazy, but I mean, it works for us. Right? It worked, it solved huge problems. But I think, uh, and I don't think the virtualization is going away. I don't think we're going to completely all go back to bare metal, although that is a thing that um, we even actually did some testing a couple years ago. HP and mm -hmm. Docker and myself, we actually wrote a white paper on virtual machine performance. Like let's say you had four MySQL servers mm -hmm. and you ran them all in, very, in the same piece of physical hardware but in a single virtual machine per MySQL, like we normally do, right? Like if you were doing it on Amazon or right. somewhere in the cloud, and then you were to take those and do them on one virtual machine on that same hardware, and then four containers of MySQL. And then what would happen if you- Within the virtual machine. Yeah, yeah, so all four in the same virtual machine. But then what if we stripped out the virtual machine, and then we did four containers of MySQL on the bare metal? And of course, no surprise, bare metal blew everything else away. And I think that will become an increasing trend as we all get very comfortable with containers and the idea of, of that being a solid barrier and protection layer to isolate our applications. I think we'll see more offerings around bare metal that will actually gain us basically free. You know, it won't maybe gain it for us. It might end up gaining it for the cloud providers, right? Because we're not the owners of the hardware. Right, exactly. But at the end of the day, I think it really means less abstractions, less complexity, and let's, let's think for the sysadmin, the actual admin of this hardware to be worried about, because if like four levels deep and you've got a customer asking you like, yeah, I, I'm not getting the performance of the GPU on this one. Yep. And you're like, ah, 
well you know the driver for virtual box and the, then the internal driver for parallels that's running on that windows instance on virtual you know yeah exactly so you can actually access the hardware a lot quicker will be very important um you're a docker captain which i am i like the analogy because this is there's ahab and whale right and you've got the icons for docker that's right <laughs> you're a captain i think the whole container ecosystem has sort of adopted every nautical term in fact it's going to get pretty tough soon if you're going to be a container project, like if you're going to make a new open source project, you're going to have to come up with new words for uh, nautical. <laughs> we've got Kubernetes and we've got Helm. Yeah. I've got all sorts of things on the Kubernetes side, on the Docker side. We have, uh, you know, all these, con- we got Swarm, we've got uh, yeah, pods, pods, things that are subtly related to water activities. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Docker captains. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. So they invented the term. Uh, Docker Captain in 2016, mm-hmm. and I happened to be lucky enough to be one of the first 30 people. And basically, we were bloggers and meetup runners, people that ran physical meetups, online meetups, spoke at conferences about Docker and Docker, uh, the sort of the Docker toolkit, which was a continually growing set of tools that Docker was making, almost exclusively open source. And we all were just talking about it because we were excited about it, and they just kind of got us all together and said, "Hey, we." Instead of us having like a blogging program and a speakers program, which a lot of companies do, they just said, let's make it sort of like if you do multiple things, if you do more than the average of sharing your Docker story and you're an expert on some part of the toolkit or the tool set there, let's just sort of get back with our engineering team because it is uh, Docker decides who becomes a captain and it's sort of their engineering group and combined with their uh, marketing teams that get together and figure out who's sort of who's who's. And then uh, they sort of of said, hey, you're a Docker captain. Of course, none of us knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. And uh, slowly the concept of it was born. But really the thing is, at the end of the day, is that we just, we share the message, the benefits of containerization and the Docker, the Docker toolkit. And then we sort of all specialize in a certain area of containers. You know, maybe you're a developer focused expert where you're focused on maybe the CICD tool chain, or maybe you're focused on local, you know, how do I make really good Docker files and local development environments? Uh, or maybe someone like me who focuses more on the production and sort of clustering of all these things into orchestration. So yeah, and there's now about 70 of us uh, worldwide, and it's an amazing group of people. I love being a part of it because everyone in there is uh, super smart. You've got people from IBM and CloudBees, who runs Jenkins and mm-hmm. uh, CodeShip, a CI/CD company, and you just got lots and lots of people in there from wide areas, all over the uh, various continents. And we get we we're all in a Slack team all day together, talking about new stuff in Docker land and uh, in the container ecosystem. Because of course, there like any new thing in IT, there's a new project every week. It seems like, if not every day. <laughs> well, so. it's good that it is, and you see this in every. I'm going to say like seasons, but not seasons. Every so often there comes a technology that everyone jumps on and has a lot of good ideas for, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you saw this for Node and you see loads of programs and packages managers, but I think that starts dying off because the problems are solved. Right. And you get the top 10 packages that are the ones that people are using because that's solving the commonality of problems. But now you must be seeing the same in Docker, right? You've got like, well, how do I scale super scale stuff so that you have low latency across containers and yeah. things like that. Yeah, in fact, at the end of the day, as exciting as new technology can be, 
when you work in this industry, you really just want things to become boring eventually, right? You don't want a new tool or a new language or a new framework that is exciting forever because that usually means it's unstable, there's backwards compatibility <laughs> issues, it's constantly changing. So you're, you're spending a portion of your job just trying to keep up. And I think that like if you were to talk about 2018, I think we've got the runtime and the runtime in the container terminology is the Docker engine that runs your containers for you. It manages your images, it downloads and uploads your images, it restarts your containers if they need to be restarted. So that's like core underlying architecture and it's now run by a project. Uh, the main open source project for that is called Container D. Okay. And yeah, Docker's kind of breaking out and their monolith, which they had originally had created. So when Docker 1.0 came out, everything was in one big project in one repo. And so now they're breaking it out into smaller chunks and you've got stuff for networking and stuff for storage. And they have one that's known as Container D, which is the low level understanding of how we run a container across all operating systems and all platforms. And the nice thing is the, the, the community, the ecosystems all gotten together and they're agreeing on the, the standards for that. So that part's got boring, which means we can all assume that things work the same way and they're consistent and in six months it'll still work that way. And I think now we're looking at how does the, you know, how does the orchestration become a standard, right? How do we take multiple servers, run containers on many servers, and treat them all like one? Because at the end of the day is really what we're trying to do with orchestration is make a bunch of servers act like one. Right. And they all, it makes decisions and reasons on its own, but we're treating it, we're running one command against many, you know? So this is uh, Docker Swarm, right? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, at least four container orchestrators in the ecosystem. I am a fan of Swarm, but mm -hmm. Kubernetes is a great project. There's an, one called Nomad that's a great project from the people that made uh, Vagrant. Mm -hmm. And then we also have Mesos, which is DCOS. And actually, that's been the longest running container manager. They've been around many years, actually. And they were around before containers. So they've actually, uh, Mesos is an Apache Foundation project. So we have, uh, we have now like these uh, various opinions on what orchestration is like, and they all have their own terminology. They all have their own way of doing things. And I think eventually, you know, a couple of years from now, we're all going to look back and realize, you know, that layer has standard, the, the terminology, the way we do things, the standards that we sort of agree on will become very common. And it'll be hard to distinguish Swarm Docker's version of orchestration from Kubernetes, which is Google and mm -hmm. the community's version of open, uh, container orchestration. I think that's one of the hard parts to get into, which is basically you're talking, I mean, because I had a look at Kubernetes and at Swarm, and they're talking about the same things, like, and I think even Rancher, but that's more of the orchestration software. But it's hard, to, it's not hard, it's just that they're de defining the same thing with a different name. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. There's like a cluster of servers that you're going to throw uh, a certain type of application to. You could call it an environment or you can call it a pod. I'm going to get this wrong, aren't I? Yeah, no, you're but, good. And in Swarm, you know, in Swarm, you're going to call it a cluster, if I remember right. And, you know, these are the same things and there might be shades of difference between them. But uh, you're right. I think it's an important that I think in a few years time, this is going to become like this is a X, you know, is a, a pod. And that's what we call it now. Right, right. Know? Yeah, I think it's funny, too, because you, you get enough of us together. Like, I was at O'Reilly's Velocity Conference last summer, and I ended up standing with a couple of gentlemen from other container orchestrator ecosystems. So we had someone from Kubernetes. I was sort of from the Swarm community. 
and we had someone from the Mesa's community, and we were the three of us were staying together. And then first we had to get a selfie. And then, <laughs> of course, it right. doesn't happen that often that all communities are are talking about the same ideas and excited. And then we were, and then we very quickly realized that we would have to translate our terminology to each other when we would talk about a, a certain type of thing, like a swarm service versus a Kubernetes pod or something like that. Um, so I think you know it's one of those things where maybe at the end of the day it won't matter those terms. Like we'll eventually all figure them out, and maybe the terms will still slightly be different. But we'll all understand that, you know, because we all get along and Azure's terminology for a different product or tool is different than AWS's terminology. And if you have to use both of those, you very quickly sort of correlate which one is the which one. Or maybe you read a right. uh, getting started guide that translates it for you on the Internet. So I don't know if we're ever going to say, you know, if I had to bet on the future I don't know if every container orchestrator is going to adopt pods, mm-hmm. but I do think that the ideas that are popular and used a lot will win, right? And I think that's the great part of the competition in open source and that we'll eventually realize that all the orchestrators have a way of doing a pod thing. They just maybe call it something different. And you know, those of us that have to care about orchestrators, we will eventually learn that, you know, just like with Azure AWS and DigitalOcean, they all have their own persistent storage. They all have a different term for it, but it fundamentally does the same thing. I guess this will lead to a meta market of orchestrators that says, hey, I can orchestrate over Azure AWS Kubernetes for your multiple failure points. So you can host all your stuff in different formats and different locations. At the end of the day, you know, is returning strings out to your user or whatever your application does, but you'll be able to manage, you know, you'll have someone that does that translation between them. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you're if you're someone who's paid half attention to, you know, the the news and the media on the on the container orchestrator stuff, because that's the next that's what everyone's talking about right now, because again, the you know, the engine's boring now. We we don't there's not a whole lot of news headlines that, you know, Docker seventeen point twelve is out and we have this new tiny little feature or whatever. You know, they don't yeah. they they they're all talking about a Kubernetes, the war of orchestrators, which I would like to say is just that's just media hype. Really, at the end of the day, we're all just using. You know, people use a tool, they like it, they stay with it. Like that's kind of it's not really a war. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we you know we're going to get to a, a future where those orchestrators will get boring, and what we'll look at is you know AWS and Azure and a lot of the the full service cloud providers. They're already pro- uh, creating systems that will build and deploy Kubernetes for you, right? Mm-hmm. Or build and deploy Swarm for you. Azure does Mesos as well. You can actually deploy it. And so you're sort of click, click, done. Or if you're using their command line tools, maybe it's a, a one-liner versus the work you would normally have to do on your own if you hand did this. Oh, God, don't go there. And I think our orchestrators, um, when at the end of the day, the real benefit for us as developers and sort of users of those platforms is that we'll have standard YAML files or JSON files that describe our application and all the various parts, especially if you're like a microservice right. where you have lots and lots of parts. And we'll be able to describe that in a way that makes sense to humans and machines. And we'll be able to take that from one cloud provider and shift it to another cloud provider without really any change to our YAML. Or we'll be able to take it into a data center and deploy it in a private data center on private hardware with that same YAML. And we can just sort of hand that off to whether it's AWS as the operator or it's your private data center operator. That, I think, is at the end of the day, when it's all the dust is settled, that's the real win for us, is that we don't have to completely rewrite the way we describe our application and how it functions together and how it communicates, but when we have to shift a platform. And that's a massive difference and importance that we're able to do that, because as you say, it's like just having that YAML file that describes 
your whole application, your whole environment. That really takes it to the next level. I remember years ago, we were trying to do some development of a clustered application. I'm talking about a long time ago, where this was very, very difficult stuff. This was We were using cluster cats mm -hmm. to try and maintain state between various Windows machines. This was voodoo it was a and um, this was a voodoo with many clicks of installers and yep. and putting some details and never worked and it might have worked and you'd never know if it worked because clustering is hard it's literally hard i mean if you just think of going i'm reloading this one web page at this one endpoint which server am i hitting right? <laughs> you know <laughs> Which one is the problem, more importantly, when it's not working? Which one is the one that's Yeah, not which working? one didn't come up? Yeah. So now being able to define it all in a file and it work and it scale. I mean, this is what Docker Compose is, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that started out being Docker Compose ended up, originally it was designed and mostly still is, as a developer tool for local development. So whenever I get with a developer team, like on a new project where they want to adopt Docker, the one of the first things I do is, you know, they may say they're running Docker on their local machine, but let's make sure you're using Compose mm -hmm. because Compose is the developer's friend. If we had a tagline for what Docker, Docker, and when I say Docker Compose, I mean that the actual command line Docker dash Compose, because mm -hmm. uh, there is the Compose file, which can be a little confusing. That's the YAML file that it uses. But um, and that file now can be used across tools. So you can use that same Compose file in Swarm. You can convert it into Kubernetes. But when we talk about local development, you normally don't develop with an orchestrator. You normally don't need to worry about Kubernetes and a Swarm when you're local development. You just want all those things to run on your local host and respond in a single server or single machine environment. And that's what Compose does for you. So whenever I see someone typing a bunch of Docker commands for their local setup, I'm always going to like take over their keyboard and say, okay, let's use Compose because it's basically a one-liner to bring it all up and a one-liner to bring it all down. And really that is, in every project I work on, that's the goal. Let's take that 20 pages of developer setup documentation you have on how to get your local environment set up with the right version of Ruby and the right version of MySQL and all that stuff. And let's turn that into a YAML file or maybe a few files and then one-line command of Docker Compose up. Because if you can get a developer to do that, no matter how awesome their Vagrant is, they're going to leave Vagrant. <laughs> you know, not, yeah. you know, they're going to leave whatever tool or mechanism or shell scripts that they had before, and they're going to realize that this reproducible tool can solve that problem better. I've got an actual use case, which is uh, I am we're recording on a brand new laptop that I just had fixed. It had nothing a week and, and a bit ago, like it had nothing on it. It came back straight from Apple, all fixed, brand new install, wiped hard drive within. Normally, I'd say it'd take me a day to get my development environment up. I was back in coding within about an hour. I think I downloaded Subversion, downloaded, not Subversion, Sublime Text. I downloaded Docker, updated my Git, I think, and then did a Git clone and Docker Compose up, and I was developing. You're living the dream. There we go. I didn't have to install MySQL or JVMs or anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the killer demos, I think, of Docker is when you can say, okay, new machine. Uh, you know, stand on stage and pull up a new machine, brand new machine, just out of the box. Yeah. We're going to install Git. We're going to install Docker. And now I'm going to type two commands, Git clone. You know, you might have to do a Git clone of a couple of projects, <laughs> a couple of repos. Right. And then you do a Docker compose up. And suddenly you could have an entire architecture. A PHP project I'm working on has a dozen microservices and growing all in a single compose file. And that Docker compose up will build 
It'll download all the dependencies. It builds in all of the developer-specific stuff that you sometimes have to have, like your testing tools and whatnot. It puts all that in there. It actually deploys the database with the sample data. It creates the database users. I mean, it just, it really, it took, I mean, we, that was our goal. It was like, we have a 12-page document for developer setup. Let's turn that into a half-a-page document that is a couple of commands. And, and we were able to do that with Compose. I mean, this is, I mean, that's one use case, which is great. But the other great use case is that you know that all the developers in your team, if you've got a big team or medium-sized team, are all using the same stuff. Does that make sense? It's not like I'm having a problem because, why? Because you installed some antivirus that's suddenly stopping you hitting port 80 for whatever reason, right? It's all working in the same way and you're all on the same version because that's what the Compose file is saying that you're using. Yeah, it's actually a testament to the amazing things that software can do. When you can see a team, it's before Docker, like pre-Docker, and you see a team where one person's on a Linux operating system, they're on a Linux laptop, and they're coding, and let's say PHP or Ruby or Node or something, and then you've got someone else on Windows, and they're developing in Windows, and they're using a different editor, a different, technically a different binary runtime. They're using IS instead of Apache or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you got someone on Mac that you know is uh, doing something else. And they're all able, at the end of the day, with their completed, complicated setups, they're able to get work done, but none of their environments are reproducible. No one knows how the other ones works, and so they just hope that we all have the same versions of the things. And, the, and so you, you use a lot of hope in those cases. So and that's the great thing about Compose is you can get as close to a guarantee as we've ever had in terms of these are the exact same versions of Linux binaries and the exact same versions of dependencies that I'm going to have on my production server or on my CI test server or on a Windows machine or on a Linux machine. And I don't think a lot of people realize that that's what's happening when you're on Windows or a Mac and you're running Docker, what's happening in the background is Docker's actually running this tiny little VM. It's, it's super tiny now. And it's running Linux in there. And so when you do things like Docker Compose Up or Docker Run, or let's say this you do is a Docker Build, a Docker Build is actually passing all the code and everything from your local machine into that VM in the background and then compiling it and installing dependencies there in the background. And there's a, you know, we don't want to say there's too much magic in something because it, then we don't understand it. But that's what's making Docker uh, have a, a large amount of complexity to it and technology in the background. But you as the user of it don't have to care. And I think that's one of the great things that the Docker team that actually develops these open source tools, I think that's one thing that sets them apart from a lot of the other experiments in the community is that they have dedicated UX people that spend so much time on the command line experience. And when you start using, you know, if you're a, a, a CLI person, you use lots of open source tools, you know that engineers tend to solve the problem first and then worry about the experience later. <laughs> it's just sort of, sort of our nature. You know, we have a problem, let's create a tool to solve it. And then, oh yeah, well, it's like five different command lines and they don't all, they're not all consistent and it's a little wonky. But I think Docker's done really well is when they release a new feature or a new version, they're always backwards compatible, at least so far. And then same Docker run you had before always still works. And then it's pretty consistent in that command line so that you can have a good experience in the future. Yeah, and it's very well documented. This is one of the things that I have to take my hat off. I mean, I'm talking at the command line level, right? Yeah, yeah. You you put docker-compose, do that now if you're listening to this on your PC at home. And you'll get a list of, what, 20 commands, all very specifically said what they do. 
and that short description tells you what they do. Now, do this with any other command on <laughs> in yep. Linux and stuff like that, and you get like a whole bunch of flags and things like that that you're like, wait a minute, what? This is not... I. I need an example. I'm going to go Google this stuff. That's right. That's that's my personal experience, and I'm sure everyone's shouting at me going, oh, you're an idiot, Mark, because you don't know the command line. But that, that's my experience. It's like you've been Docker-composed, and it's, what do I do? Okay, these are the, the, my, the following steps. They all make sense. They're kind of limited as well. It's not like a massive list of stuff. Well, I'm sure it will grow, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has grown, and there have been a few complaints, but I think they've managed that really well for the amount of things that it does. Because when you, at the end of the day, Docker's managing storage and networking and mm. images and containers. And then if you do Swarm, you get a whole extra set of features. And versioning which, with like tags. That's, uh, yeah, it's a, that's a lot, right? Yeah. yeah, node management of server. I mean, if you think about it, we would have... So it's doing everything in computing, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's recreating the internet in a command line. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's a non-trivial problem, but it does it fairly elegantly. Um, so where do you see the future of automation? Where do you see like this guy? Of, not automation, like this is what we're doing, this Docker, this containerization. Where's the next step? What do you think would be the new thing? Yeah, the new thing. Well, everybody talks about serverless and functions as a service is sort of the next developer I don't know which word you want to use for that. The next way that we think about architecting computers and our code. But I think at the end of the day, uh, really that is so related to containers because I think that a lot of what we're, at the end of the day, what we're going to end up having with serverless platforms is, and if you're not savvy in a serverless, it's basically you think about writing single functions and then you can deploy a function as sort of an API call and you can structure all these together and they're very loosely coupled. So when you think about a microservice and how you can loosely couple a, a lot of different resources together or code together, uh, serverless is even more so that. And so you can care even less about the underlying infrastructure because you don't even have to care about how many servers you have. And you're deploying single functions as a service. And I think what's in the day that those platforms are all going to be just running containers underneath. And it's just going to be a way that you decide, do I need, at the end of the day, do I just write a monolith, a single application? Do I write a microservice where, you know, each one of my repos or each one of my applications has a set of related functionality and they all talk over HTTP? Or do I go sort of to the next level, which is every function is, is an unrelated thing that all run independently and talk to each other over HTTP or uh, RPC protocol or something? And I think that, that you know that media wants to describe these are all absolutes, you know, and there is no absolute, right? In computing, we still do mainframes. We still have, I, I you know, mainframe, mainframes are cool again because they can run containers. <laughs> so, so I don't think that there is an absolute. I think it's really uh, now what we have is we're going to end up having more options. If you're a developer, you don't have to choose if you know. Well, if I decide to start doing microservices, I'm going to have to create this complicated platform to deploy my dozens and dozens of applications. Well, hopefully by then you're in containers and you have fully CI-CD, maybe you have mostly automated CI-CD, and those containers are being built and deployed into a, a registry of some sort, which is where you store Docker images, mm -hmm. and maybe that's mostly automated, and the only thing that's not automated there is you just push the button to deploy into production, and maybe everything else is automatically tested, and that's where a lot of people are going to, and the next stage is, okay, well now I have this serverless option, so maybe for some of my applications, I don't need to write in an, a full, you know, 
large application with its own authentication built in and all these different nuanced parts that we have to build into each one of our APIs or web front ends. Maybe I can just write a small little function that needs to be called occasionally, and that will be deployed over here on my FAS solution as we're using that term now. Okay. And I'm no. sure you've probably talked about serverless a lot on your on your show before. Not yet. So I think what's happening is we're just going to get these new options, right? And that at the end of the day, it's just going to be easier and easier for a developer to stop worrying about infrastructure and start focusing more on their business problems. Which is exactly where business wants to go. I mean, this is what developers want to be doing, right? So going back to having a team of multi-OS developers that are running there, that's fine. And I think there's going to be a lot of houses out there going like, yeah, we've got a Windows guy, a guy running Emacs, a guy running Eclipse or whatever, right? And that's fine for quite a lot of the time until you find that bug that is difficult to track because yeah. of different versions and stuff like that, right? And that's the one that's going to like suddenly eat up all your time until you track it down. And if we can get rid of that and get and businesses can just solve problems, which is what Docker is doing, right? Is helping you just solve the, the business problem or deliver a service as you should be. Yeah, and I think in a community where we have, you know, there's I hear estimates around, and by 2020, though, for every developer there'll be two jobs available. So, you know, in a community where we are short on talent and long on uh, needing more more code, we need to start, you know, we need these layers of problems that we solve. Kelsey Hightower, who is a uh, developer advocate at Google for the Kubernetes uh, platform and their cloud platform, mm -hmm. he's a big Twitterer, so you can probably find Kelsey Hightower on Twitter. He's, he has great tweets uh, around uh, the irony of being a developer today. And he talks about that, you know, we talk about DevOps and DevOps eventually will just be a feature of the platforms. Like DevOps was a new idea for us because it was a new way that we had to work together and a new way that we had to uh, automate and deploy our systems. But eventually it's really just going to be some nuance when it's not new anymore. And we're, we're all, we've all sort of reasoned about what DevOps means and the ways that we, you know, the common ways we should test and deploy applications that it really will just be baked in features. We might even not even use the word like it's some sort of special thing, right? Right. Um, and, and I, I agree think with businesses, that. Sorry. So businesses, I think a lot of the time thought that DevOps was a cheap way to get to not need to hire two different people to do the same job or to do two different jobs. So you could just get a guy, oh, do you do DevOps? Yeah, you start looking after this machine and developing everything. It's like, no, it's not a replacement for webmaster. You know, it's not. I will not disagree with that statement. That is, that is probably yeah. true in a lot of cases. Um, so you're going to be in Sacramento in April. Yeah. Is that right? You're doing Muricon. Muricon. It's going to be an exciting time there. We're going to be talking about Docker a lot. I went to Muricon a few years back, and it was a lot about the development, about uh, more of the developer side, the stuff that I talked on, and how you can use different technologies. And now is turning much more into actually solving business problems, which I know development is meant to do, but this is a theme, isn't it, uh, Miracon? It's basically like now you're getting Docker first, you don't have to even worry about essentially the hosting of it and just solve business problems. Yeah, and the nice thing with something like Mira is that we can, once they've decided to go Docker and they started creating standard Docker images, the developer, even if they don't have necessarily today the Docker infrastructure in production, that doesn't mean they can't take advantage of it uh, locally for developing. And so the nice thing about Docker is that different teams can implement it in different phases. I actually implemented Docker originally 
just for CI CD. We weren't even using it for development or production. We were just using it for faster automated testing. Mm -hmm. And so as a developer with uh, Mura now, you can choose to use their images that they've uh, spent a lot of time on to locally develop with at an easier time so that maybe if especially if you have larger sites right if you have multiple installations that are different versions you locally now have to de deal with version management before docker but now you can easily just use the same docker compose commands with different compose files that have different versions of the dependencies or whatever you need different templates and themes so you um at the end of the day it's taking time it's saving you time it's making it easier for you to just focus on the business problems. And once you maybe get to automating in CI, CD with Docker, or maybe even going to production with Docker, which we'll, we'll talk about at Muricon, uh, we're actually having a session just on the production problems that you're going to have when you go to like multi-server Docker stuff. We'll talk about Swarm. We'll talk about other things. And that's, uh, those are all related, but not necessarily problems you have to tackle at the same time. And that's really what's flexible and great about the Docker platform. One of the big ones that I've seen is actually knowing what's running and knowing what the output of each one is. So not the output, but for example, the logs, like, mm -hmm. you know, you might be getting logs. And of course, each different application server decides to write logs in a different way to a different place. And is keeping track of all of that, because if you have an environment that you're scaling dynamically and a server baths, it's kind of like if a server baths in a cluster and no one's there to watch it, did it really bath, you know? Right. And in managing to see, you know, like a service spun up, it errored, and then it disappeared. Why did that happen? You know, I think those are the issues that people have in production rather than anything major. Yeah, I think Docker, that one of the, if you did know, Docker, uh, what you're talking about, like Docker logs, what the things it does actually is it helps you organize your logs, right? So if you have multiple applications on various servers, you can consolidate all that into a constant log, a consistent log stream. And uh, even if you don't use a third-party platform for your log management. And so, yeah, it's like, if it didn't get logged, did it ever really happen? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I agree with you there that it's also, like you said, with Docker Compose and Local, you know, even just, even if you're just a new developer and you want to do something, if you want to use, a, you know, a, a Ruby or a PHP or whatever on Apache, and you're just using development, you've already, without Docker, you've already got multiple files for logging that you have to go, you know, okay, now where are they on my operating system, right? Because on Mac or on a Linux, even on Linux, there's different distributions, different locations. And I think one of the things we don't give Docker and the, uh, their idea around how to run applications, one of the ideas originally was, let's get all the logs and put them all in STD out. Let's put them right here on the console, and then we can ship those wherever we need them to later. But we'll combine them all together. And that's a, an extremely valuable thing that there's probably dedicated tools out there that before that we use just to do that. And now uh, it's just kind of built in. So This is the way to go. Uh, Grant, when's Muricon? April 5th and 6th in Sacramento. And uh, like you said, Brett has actually a couple of talks and a workshop. Uh, we're going to be <laughs> very, very busy. <laughs> but one of the nice things about Muricon is that the sort of environment that we've set up is it's easy to sort of mill around afterwards and chat with everybody. Right. So, you know, Brett's going to be very available. Um, Eddie, who's uh, doing one of the talks with Brett, can talk about how Docker and Mura have sort of been married together. And yeah, it's a, it's always a great, friendly time. It's probably the safest, friendly environment to introduce you to the new and upcoming of Mura you could possibly imagine. 
Awesome. So where can we find you online, Brett? Uh, you can find me at brettfisher.com. That's my blog, B-R-E-T-F-I-S-H-E-R.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Brett Fisher, on GitHub, and just about everything else is Brett Fisher. You can find me there. Cunning name. I see what you did there, using your yeah, name yeah. as your Twitter handle, Cunning. <laughs> You know, those of us who have been around a while, we had our 90s, uh, you know, we were the avatars in the 90s. You could never use your real name. And then there was at some point I realized, you know, if you're in this industry and no one can find you online, yeah. they probably don't think you're pretty good at your job. So. <laughs> I think we're going to go full circle that we're all going to be named after our avatars now in the, in the future. <laughs> but on that note, you can find us as Localhost FM on the Twitters, at Mark Drew, cunningly enough, at Mark Drew. Grant, what, what are you on the Twitter if people want to contact you about Muricon? At Grant Shepherd. Oh, my God, this cunning, cunning nickname <laughs> thing. Uh, uh. And we managed to get a full house. Everybody has their real name. Yeah, and you're at, at superfragilisticexpialidocious at Twitter, yeah. no? Yeah, it, well, I was going to, but it's too long. They wouldn't allow it. So I'm just at Rob Dudley. Ah, so that makes it very simple. Thank you, Brett and Grant. You've been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. And... That's it from us. If you have any feedback, do email us at show at localhost.fm. You can go to our website, localhost.fm. Rate us on iTunes, for goodness sakes. We don't have ratings yet, and we're surely good, right? Or at least we must be at least two stars. Leave a review, and till next time, thank you.